Brilliant. Welcome to this ACG New York presentation in collaboration with Growth TV. Today, my guest is Jay Haber of Getzler Henrik, who um, we actually all heard from a few weeks ago, talking about the financialization of the oil patch. And that particular podcast was so well received. I thought we'd have Jay come back and, and join us again because, Jay, it was riveting conversation. And here you are, sir. Thanks to have you back. How are you? I'm, I'm fine. I'm fine. Happy to be back. Uh, things haven't changed very much, except we have uh, dozens more bankruptcies, I guess. And uh, that that's, the, you know, everyday business down here now. So. I know. I mean, it, you know, one of the industries that has obviously been so affected by the vagaries in this new paradigm that we all find ourselves in is the oil and gas world. Um, obviously, lots of sectors, subsectors, industries have been affected, but that particular world had a lot of woes going into this new sort of cauldron state. Mm -hmm. And we had talked about it before, Jay, but I, I wanted to elaborate and extend on that chat. And But before I do that, Jay, perhaps a little bit more about yourself for those that hadn't listened in on the podcast before a bit about you and your tenure and what you do at um getzler and uh the here and now as to where you are all right well uh as we discussed before i'm a 30 plus year veteran of the operating oil business uh had an operating oil company operated wells drilled uh, exploratory wells not for the faint of heart uh did that for 20-something years, uh, started a very meaningful service company. So for those in the audience that want to discuss service, we can talk about that and its vicious cycles. Whatever the oil cycle is, those become more vicious, both up and down. Uh, and uh, now, uh, in addition to having an oil hat, because I'm, I'm in Houston around the business still, I am the senior uh, oil uh person at Gessler Henrik, which is a middle market, 50-year-old, turnaround distressed firm. Uh, and uh, we're here to serve. Anybody needs help, we're here. Uh, help them with any problems they're running into now in the distressed world we live in. Uh, if nothing else, the distress is very, very, this time it's flat. It's everywhere. There's, there's almost no place to hide, frankly, even, yeah. at the very, even at the very, very high end, Exxon, Chevron, people like that. They're, they're feeling it as well. So, yeah. well, we've been we've all read so much about the woes of the energy world, the woes of the oil and gas sector within so many different things and factorials that have led to what was before this this CV nineteen crisis. But maybe we could we can we can go back to to the the state the current state of the energy sector and, and what you believe led us to the crisis, Jay. Um, yeah. A lot of things that are coupled in and amongst all of that, but take us on a journey if you would. I will, thank you. And by the way, thank you for having me here today. I enjoy this and I hope it, I hope it helps people who watch the video, it gives them a little information to connect some dots, hopefully. Um, at the end of the day, like in our first video, first meeting, this is about the financialization of the oil patch. And I think the first thing to do is to define what that means. We didn't do that this time. Uh, what, it, what it really means is that financial transactions, borrowing, leveraging, speculation, is more profitable 
than producing actual products or services. And that is what has taken over the oil patch, period. Um, if you go pre-shale, uh, finding oil all over the world was a skill set, a business, a very difficult business, very challenging, uh, both domestically and foreign. And now everything's based on some form of financial transaction. And I, as we discussed the last time, I hearken back to the housing crisis where home mortgages became a financial transaction. And uh, like everything else, uh, got overextended because there was so much money to be made in the financial instruments uh, and no way to control it. It all collapsed on itself. And, I, and, and frankly, that's where we are now. We're at the collapse stage of uh, the financialization of the oil patch. I think the second thing to discuss early is that the benefits of the financial instruments were asymmetric. Uh, those who originated the instruments made billions upon billions, but the borrowers and the pension plans and even some of the innocent oil companies who didn't realize what was happening to them uh, were invested in these instruments one way or another and accepting risks I don't believe they understood. And we'll talk about that a little later in, in the uh, discussion. Um, I believe everybody calls it the fracking miracle. And uh, it's not. It was a financial miracle. The amount of money made at the financial industry was just mind-boggling. The turn on the money, and we'll get to it later, but as you know, the velocity of money is my big thing. You have a financial industry that velocity of money is now the in thing. And the oil business is not a velocity industry if done properly. And that's really where the two, they two intersect and explode. They're trying to take a five to seven year cycle business minimum and turn it into a two to three year business cycle. Yeah. So, and, and that, I guess, works when you have an oil price, certainly from what I remember. And, and you know, I played in the oil world for a while back in 2014 in prelude to that, 140 bucks a barrel. Everyone was swimming in the stuff. It was fantastical. Yeah. But let's go back. Let, let, let's go back, Jay. Let's, let's go back to the shale gale in 2006 or even prior. Walk me, yeah. walk me through to the timing of how we got here. All right. Well, uh, like all good schemes for lack of a better word, so I can start annoying people early in the conversation. Uh, like all good schemes, you have to have something that's magical, something that nobody understands, so you can continue to promote it on, on and on and endlessly. Uh, the, the, the shale miracle started in the Barnett Shale in 05. Uh, George Mitchell, Mitchell Energy, had been drilling the Barnett for many, many years vertical wells, gas wells, uh, up near Dallas, Dallas-Fort Worth, and doing very well, and sold it to Devon. And Devon was a more of a Oklahoma City cutting edge. Oh, we could, we could drill horizontal wells and do much better. And they did. They started with the short horizontals, 1,200 feet, 1,500 feet. And it was amazing how much better the wells performed which made sense. Uh, unfortunately, as we've now all found out, it doesn't last, but that's, you know, let's not worry about that right now. Where it really turned, where this whole thing turned 
was Devons in Oklahoma City, very close to Chesapeake and Aubrey McClendon. Yeah. Aubrey watched this and said, wow, look at this. Everywhere they drill a well. It's a little different than the regular oil patch with dry holes. You know, what an annoyance that is. And so he literally leased as almost four counties around the Barnett and took the position that it's all the same. And, and the, the joke always was he would have New York analysts come down and he would uh, take them up on helicopters right above the wells and say, there's my well. And everything else you can see from here is a putt proved undeveloped, also known later on as helicopter putts. Um, what that led to and the boom was on five, six, seven, uh, eight, nine was a timeout because of the, the, the financial crisis and the, the collapse of the housing market and all the ramifications of that. It disappeared rather quickly. We had almost a V bottom. And here mm -hmm. we are, 10, 11, 12. And that was the start of the speculation, the rise of the flippers who would go out, buy any acreage you could think of under some guys that this is the next Barnett, really. So you had the Haynesville, the Eagleford, and then everything was the next Eagleford. You had the Bakken early, uh, and then the Midcon a little later. And that was really the start of the speculation, again, funded by new people, private equity, who had always been in the oil patch, but in a very limited way or in very big projects, foreign projects. And they are now funding the flippers who would buy acreage and flip it to other PE-backed people that wanted to develop it or the public companies. Um, it, it really took off in 13. That's when now everything's been bought. I call mm -hmm. it the PE boom started, really started in 12, 13, 14. Uh, the pop-up, as I call them affectionately, I think I said this last time, the pop-up oil companies, which are not designed to be in business more than 24 months, like the Christmas store in your mall every year shows up for two months. And it's a, it's an interesting dilemma that, that they are there designed to accomplish their goals quickly. And if they didn't, they get flushed away as well. So, and there was just a massive number of funding of teams. The public's now said, Oh, this is terrific. They were not set up for speculation. So they would too buy acreage from the flippers. Uh, anything became leasable. This is my footnote, because then there was this, this absolute panic. We don't have anything new. And that's where the Mississippi Lime came from. You remember that jewel mm -hmm. that bankrupted, what, four or five or six companies? Uh, extensions of the Permian, north, south, east, west, those didn't work. Uh, I thought the best one was the Tuscaloosa Marine Shale, mm -hmm. which was catastrophically bad and very expensive. And uh, that also created some bankruptcies. Um, 15, 16 were interesting. We had our first ripple. Why? Well, the Saudis decided to overproduce again. Price went down. Uh, people started having bad economic consequences. But that was the start of FOMO, fear of missing out. And you have 16, 17, 18, 19, which was absolutely the blow off top more money invested in this segment than all the years before that combined. And the production grew by 3 million plus barrels a day. 
believe it or not. So we went from really eight, nine to 12, 13 a day. Uh, the number of wells being drilled was astronomical. Uh, and now, of course, uh, and I wanted to make something clear. None of these people were profitable at 50. That's the mythology. We'll talk about that later. But uh, the fact that oil dropped, yes, $9 was terrible. But they're not profitable at 50. They're not profitable at 60. And, uh, you know, now we have the bankruptcies. And you, I'm sure you keep up with them. And Chesapeake, they just destroyed $8 billion of debt, got washed away. Yeah. Um, we have another one today, Denbury. This very yeah. last night, two point six billion washed away, uh, and it's the old joke about when the tide goes out, we find out who's not wearing a bathing suit, and that's really where we are, and uh, uh, that's really the history which led us to what was a real business into a complete financial uh, financialization. Everything is financial, junk oh. bonds, perpetual preferreds. Uh, you can't, you know, 82 varieties of other bonds, seniors. I, I had one instance where some guy bought senior secured and he thought it had a lien. I said, well, show me the paperwork. So I look at it for him. I said, where does it say it's, well, isn't senior mean it's first lien? Oh, my Lord. Yes. Well, but this was new, even to a lot of guys that were in the bond business. There was a lot of sloppiness. So. Uh, it is what it is. Here we are. That takes you pretty much through the time. Oh. There you go. Thank uh, you, we are live. Um, but they, you know, I remember February, what was it? February 2015. Yep. When oil hits 27 bucks a barrel, my business at the time started dying a slow death. At, the, at that moment, you could point a few fingers and say, right, the CLO market and what was going on there, yep. what that um, sort of wrote off. And we all remember Samson and some of the other players that, um, mm -hmm. you know, were victims of, of that time. Right. But who, who do you believe without pointing? Let's actually, let's point a few fingers without naming names. <laughs> without who naming you, names. Right. Who do you believe? All right. Were the root causes and 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 or what were the root causes of right. the the here and now and who are the the players in the in the current crisis? Where is this accountability that we ask for in everything that we do? Where was it in the oil? Isn't, isn't that funny? Yes. So we have a lack of accountability. We have really, and I I find this very interesting. You'll appreciate this at ACG. We have disinter uh, disinter uh, interbe Intermediation, mm -hmm. inter intermediation. And that really is what's upset the apple cart, where every time there's a transaction, there's some instrument being created. And you have obviously no alignment. You have P firms with short time spans. Uh, management teams want three to five years. They're really on two to three. The banks want five years or more. They're really on three. Uh, it was really difficult. But the way this worked is, Let's go back to velocity of money and go back to the fact that even uh, you can start in 10, 11, 12, no one really understood the technical nature or characteristics of unconventional reservoirs. Nobody. So the estimates were made up. 
they and 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 you know, let's not call anybody a bad person. They're saying, "Oh, isn't this great?" The problem was the the shameless promotion based on a lack of knowledge. Um, so, what? Who do you have in the playing field? You've got mm-hmm. the limited partners who are the funding source for virtually everything that goes on. They fund the MES people. They fund the PE people. They fund the hedge fund people. Uh, allocators, and we, you know who they are, mm-hmm. advise the LPs, gee, you have to be in energy. It's 15, back then, 15% of the S&P. But you really should do it through an expert. Well, who, who were the self-appointed experts? The PE firms, the hedge funds, the MES funds. Uh, so you have PE is the next player. They're rewarded uh, at 2% of money invested and 20% of the upside. Well, yeah. 2% for five years on a half a billion dollar fund is a good living. And as these funds ballooned and ballooned, that became the go-to. Let's, let's collect 2% on $2 billion with 10 people in the office. That's a hell of a business. Um, and so there, and by the way, they only could collect it if the money was placed. So a fund would be closed and the money would be placed instantaneously. Um, you right. then you move to the MES funds, which is an interesting concept because it's filled the gap even more importantly when Dodd-Frank limited the banks to 50% uh, before they were lending more. But the MES guys are basically glorified hawk shops. Uh, They're charging 14% interest, sometimes more, vigorous on everything. And at the end of the day, uh, you know, you, you just can't, in the oil patch, you know, they always tell you you're buying stuff at PV10. Yeah. Well, if you're paying 14% interest, you're minus two, at least to your friend Jay. <laughs> That's, I don't understand it. And it was everywhere. Um, the next thing is the public companies. And this is very interesting. This is the shale based publics, not your broadly based companies. They were not set up to do this. So now, what? why are they at fault? Well, job security, fishy packages, reserve growth based incentives. So let's, we'll get to that in a minute about reserve growth. Uh, but uh, you have investor presentations that by the time 1819 rolled around, Vic, you didn't even have, you could just change the name of the basin. They were all identical. None of it was accurate. It was all promotional. Um so with the public coast that really were, and, and by the way, the stock prices, what are we down now? 70, 80, 90% on most of them. Uh-huh. Uh, so you have that, you have the senior banks, very interesting, who I feel very badly for. We're under pressure to compete with other banks, under pressure to deploy capital by their senior management. And so they're out there lending money. Um, I don't want to, I try not to be nasty. I've told them to their faces, this is not four percent money lending. This no. isn't. This is not regular oil and gas. You should be charging twelve or fourteen percent for the risk you're taking. They believe me. They now understand, and I've talked to them. Obviously, I talk to them all the time now. Uh, they're not happy, and I'm not sure. I think there's going to be a lot of slippage in them lending ever again to this stuff. I think you're going to see massive, massive less capital, massive amounts. Um, you got the management teams. You would think they would try. Well, that's free lunch. 
they're out there. They got a good underlying menu on their free lunch. They have optionality. If it works, it works. If it doesn't, they go home and start another one. So <laughs> just amazing business model. You have the investment banks, our favorite, which are commissions without consequences. <laughs> right? Let's leave it at that. Mm -hmm. And uh, you got the, the brokerage houses on the sell side hyping everything and particularly in love with single basin companies because that's easy to understand. Exxon's very hard to understand. Where's all this coming from? So let's all be single basin. So you have Bakken Company, a, a, a Permian Company. Uh, and then the last of the best of all is, is the hedge funds who mm. frankly don't care about anything, just go where they can clip a nickel. I mean, that's really what it is. It's a great model. They do a great job, but that's really who they are. And I've always finished with the velocity of money. There's an interesting tidbit now that we have all these people. I don't know if you follow any of them on Twitter, but I'll gladly send you a list. All the ex-employees of all these players are now bloggists mm -hmm. who are absolutely shellacking all the companies that are out there and all the companies they used to work for. And I will tell you, it was a very lonely 10 years for me telling everybody this is a Ponzi scheme and nobody ever would side with me. And now, now that they've been fired and laid off, they're all bloggers saying, wow, what a scam. I find that very distasteful, by the way, very disingenuous. Yeah. So, you know, but that's where we are. So that, that really takes us, you know, to the topic of what were the symptoms and what do we do now? Well, the smelly cat is really out of the bag. I tell you what, Jay, a few, few years ago, I, I guess you were termed as the Nourier Rabini of, of, of Houston, walking into the petroleum club there and saying some outlandish things that have, have come to fruition. I'm, I'm listening to all of this and I'm seeing some aspirational and opaque accounting within all of this. So my question is, how do we then get to a, a state of complete financial meltdown of the energy energy space? Well, that's a great question. And the truth is that, what, like, and again, I'm going to keep going back to, like all good schemes, you, you have to have um, aggressive accounting. Because when you actually count, things are never as good as the promotion. Um, I <laughs> like to start with EBITDA. So... Oh. As we all know, EBITDA is the invention of the PE firms. They value everything based on EBITDA, five times EBITDA, six times EBITDA, and that's their valuation model. The problem is that was never appropriate for oil and gas. It was never used by oil and gas. Oil and gas was uh, your, your reserve base divided by your number of shares mm -hmm. or your, or your uh, free cash flow. What is your free cash flow? free cash flow being after everything. Yeah. Well, EBITDA by definition does not include CapEx, these massive, massive amounts of CapEx uh, or interest. So since they're borrowing all this money to buy all this acreage at 30, 40, 50,000 an acre, and they're borrowing the money to drill the wells so they could keep the velocity going, uh, basically you have EBITDA. And as you know, we talked about it last time, the shale companies, the publics that we can have data on, are in their 10th year of negative, consecutive year of negative free cash flow, totaling now, according to Deloitte, $300 billion. Yeah. 
and bought positive EBITDA every year for the same period of time. Um, and so the simple truth is, if you want to disguise what's going on, measuring by EBITDA, you do. I think the other things that have gone on are uh, gimmicks. Let's call them gimmicks. I'll blow through these so I don't bore you to tears. But but it's interesting. Uh, I don't know if I brought this up the last time. I may not have. Uh, a good, maybe in 2012, 13, I was asked by a company to try to sort out why they were drilling in the Permian and a, a public company was drilling near them and not adjacent, but close enough. And this public company, aggressive public company, I'll leave it at that, was announcing publicly that their wells cost $7 million. My guy's wells were costing almost 10 and it was driving them nuts. They couldn't figure it out and they did everything. They tried a data exchange with those people, which they got, and they're looking at everything and they're doing everything virtually the same. And so I went through the daily drilling reports and what did I find out? The aggressive public was turning over the wells to the production department the day they fracked them, not after they flowed them back, literally the day they fracked them. So the flowback was now in production department and was considered an LOE, if you can uh, imagine. Right. Yeah. My guys were doing the flowback over 60 to 90 days, and that $2 million or $3 million it was costing for the bad water, disposal of the water, the rigs, the this, the equipment, was going into their drilling and completion cost. How silly, right? And so that's all it was. And that is a huge problem to this day. So when some innocent person that sees this, hopefully sees this video, and they say, somebody said their well cost them $6 million, all I would do is just say, I don't believe it, let's move on. Because there's so much gimmickry in how that's being calculated. Um, there's a new one, which I find exceptionally irritating which is workover expenses on wells are in many cases not expensive, by the way, 15, 20, 25,000, just a regular everyday event is being put into the CapEx account, not in the LOEs. Uh, and the way they do this is they, they establish a principle that anything over $15,000 is capital, even if it's just repairing tubing, it's not. And, uh, they are hot. So their LOEs are now artificially decreased. I defy you. I'll give you a homework assignment. You find me someone that's ever looked at the CapEx account at one of these companies. Even the banks who lend the money never look at it because it's all part of the picture, right? That's really sleazy. And it's going on massively right now. Um, there's the other recurring, non-recurring, so you have something in these unconventional wells that recurs yeah, once a year, once every 18 months. To me, that's recurring. Not now. They don't include it in the reserve report. It's just eliminated. And they, we're talking 200,000, 300,000, 400,000. Not talking small change. So that's left out under the guise it's not recurring. And nobody can check because you never see this. It's all how they're doing the behind-the-scenes accounting. The best, probably the best, is the fixed variable, the famous fixed versus variable allocation. Why mm -hmm. is it important? If you say that your cost of operations are 30% fixed, 
therefore go down materially when the wells decline, your reserve report number will be massively higher. So what you see people doing is claiming their fixed is only 40% when it's really 75 and 80%. And a guy who drilled 180 wells and operated them, trust me, once it's out there, it's out there. Yeah. <laughs> Everything's fixed. Not, not really, but almost. And so that is probably the biggest abuse. And those are the numbers, by the way, that are given to the reserve report guys for purposes of calculating the reserves. Because if it really is booked at 30, you, you have another 30% of reserves that, aren't, that don't exist, I promise. So you don't have transparency. Uh, you have opaqueness across the board. I think it's really hard in today's world to figure out what the cost of production really is. That's why when they give you, I, we break even at 30, 40, 50, 70, mm -hmm. I don't need any of it. I know from people I know in the industry, the number is really closer to 70%, uh, 70, $70, 70, 75 is, now that's all in. That's what the leases, mm -hmm. drilling, completion, uh, operating costs. And, and, you know, that's a problem. It's a real problem. It's not $40 oil, I can assure you. So, uh, well, that, go ahead. Now, I was going to say, let's, let's, previous financial crisis, you can look at the, uh, the players in the mortgage world and some characters within, some actors that were producing some, some things that they shouldn't have. Duping people, let's put it that way. Yeah, for lack of a better word. A lot of folk that are listening in on this will say, well, hold on a minute. We only invested or we did what we had to because there were reserve reports, and you touched on it, reserve reports that were supporting all these valuations and enabling our activity. Mm -hmm. uh, let's talk about those players, Jay. All right. I, 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 I'm, my mind boggles because I say to myself still that, that there were these reports that were backing, is this, this data was backing those valuations. What happened to these players? What happened to these folk? Well, the, the cute part about this is, and again, I'm, I'm in the oil business to this day, is when you walk in and try to raise capital, the first words out of the funder's mouth is, do you have a third party reserve? Yep. Yep. Well, of course, of course we do. From one of many, the big down to the very small. And like all, and I'll back to my, my theme for the day, schemes, like all schemes, the mother's milk of all schemes is a third-party reserve report that says this is worth a billion dollars. So then the guy says, oh, this is great. I can lend you on that or I can partner with you on that. How wonderful. Um the, the start of the problem is the software that's used is Ares. You know that. Mm -hmm. Ares is a, a lovely program. I call it SpaghettiWare for Oil. It's kind of like old windows. Uh, it's, it, it is. And it was, and, and to defend it, it was remote. It's a, it's a glorified Excel spreadsheet with widgets galore. But more importantly, it was really okay. And it built in all of the traditional known factors for conventional oil and gas. What things look like, the Archie's, Archie's equation, all the things everybody talks about. Um, 
the problem is it had never seen an unconventional reservoir. It wasn't designed for it. It couldn't cope with it. Uh, and so what do you have? So you have Aries, which has, it's, it's the best way to put it is it's subjective. It is completely subjective, depending on these hundreds of toggle switches. How many years do you want this factor? How many years do you want that factor? How many, how many of these do you want? And why is that important? Because if you're not entirely honest, you could manipulate the outcome. And remember, I'm showing somebody a reserve report. I'm not showing them Aries on a computer where they could look at the dashboard and see that you did what? You cut off the expenses in year eight. You have no expenses, which you could do, by the way. Uh, you can cut off, you can accelerate plugging or decrease plugging. Um, so you have, it's subjective and it's easily manipulated. Uh, the thing I point out to people that bothers me the most is Aries is a data sucking program. It takes the data from, in this case, IHS or drilling info. Yep. And that's based on the public data in every con conservation commission, railroad commission in Texas. Mm -hmm. And so if, if you are an investor in these things and somebody tells you the wells are doing great, you can actually look them up all by yourself. And it shows you what the well has produced every, every month from inception and why nobody ever does that. And I promise you, Vic, people just don't do it. I, I've been in meeting after meeting. I show it to them. I get online. <gasps> they go, oh, my God, these wells are terrible. <laughs> I said, well, here they are. You could have been checking this every month if you wanted to, just to see if anybody's not entirely forthcoming. Um, and, but you've got a lot of things. So what's happened is the flaws in Aries is it can't account. Traditional calculations are you drain a certain number of acres, so the powers that be, the promotional companies, said, oh, 120 acres a unit. So in a 640, you'd have six wells, eight wells. Uh, the only problem is they had no evidence of that. It was made up. I think I told you in the last time we did this, uh, you need to make that, that decision. You need to know how much oil is in place. And with unconventional, that's made up. Uh, it's a guess. And then how much drainage do you have of that 30%, 40%? That's a guess. So they had an estimate followed by a guess. And uh, that's tough. That's really tough. The original estimates, and I'll get, I'll get a lot of negative fan mail, but it's true, was that these companies were claiming 15 to 20%, sometimes 25% recovery. Not like conventional 30, 40, 50 what's turned out to be single digits really in the five, six, 7%. And that is why the wells have underperformed by 50, 60, 70%. That's really the blood and guts of it. Um, but you have things like well density, bubble point death, which has to do with oil reservoirs uh, in tight zones. People have known about that since the fifties, but it's no different than unconventional and the wells just don't produce very well. The oil doesn't come out and the gas, the, you know, gas keeps going up and up as relation to barrels produced. Yeah. Uh, I don't want to dwell on it, but the parent child well thing, which is now everyday talk at your local oil bar mm -hmm. uh, has, you know, 
You drill a well in a conventional well. The child was usually similar, if not identical to the parent. Uh, in these, the child is always lower, sometimes much lower. And then you get the cousins, as we now call them, which are <laughs> lower, successively lower. Um, you have something very interesting. We didn't discuss this last time. B factor. You've heard that. Mm -hmm. B factor, which is a calculation that is in the areas that you pick a B factor. And you put that in. Well, if you say 1.3 is the B factor, that means you get 30% of your money back in the first year. 1.5, you get 50%. Well, believe it or not, the production actually will back you into the B factor. Absolutely. Be honest about it. But so what they do is 1.5 and 1.6 sound a lot better than 1.1.1.2, don't they? So uh, that's a problem, huge problem. You have the term, terminal decline lie. This is huge. Uh, conventional production reaches terminal decline in a few years where you basically flattened out. So they said this is going to be all these unconventional wells are going to hit terminal decline in year three, which was a guess made up. Was, okay, it's a good guess. Well, the truth is many of those reservoirs never reach terminal decline. I have those Eagleford wells I told you about the first time that are now in year seven and eight and still haven't reached terminal decline. They're still dropping 30, 20, 30% a year. Um, and that's the nature of unconventional. Some yeah. are better than others, but there's this terminal decline nonsense is silly. Um, let's see what else. Uh, oh, the promotion that they drill a good well and we can repeat that across our acreage. There's no evidence of that. That's becoming a real problem in these bankruptcies. What, what are we going to do? And by the way, the bankruptcies are being settled out based on these flawed reserve reports, by the way, Vic. And uh, my only comment to you is good luck with these restructures where they're pulling them out. Uh, I have one term I love to use. By the way, if it was so easy, why do we have a new frack every six months? We're now on frack seven or eight. Yeah. Right. Uh, I mean, how silly is that? Um this is really, it's exploration disguised as development. And I think that's the biggest thing that did the investors, whether they be LPs or family offices uh, or the less experienced MES people, PE people that lured them in. This is exploration. Every well's exploration. There's, and by the way, if you remember Harold Hamm, you mm -hmm. know, the manufacturing process where everything's identical, and we're just going to slide the rig. Yeah. Well, that's obviously, and by the way, at the time he said it, he was not lying. Everybody believed that for that little era back in 11, 12, but here we are. So <clears throat> I always say to people, you can't buy lunch with PUDs or PV10s. You need actual cash flow. And uh, here we are. And that's about it. The only other thing we discussed it last time, your question would have been, and nobody blew the whistle. Well, Nobody had a financial incentive. The reserve engineers didn't, reservoir engineers didn't, their bosses didn't, the CEOs didn't, the CFOs didn't, the auditor didn't, the bank didn't. And, and you know, here we are today. Uh, this, I hope, takes everybody through it without boring them to tears like we did everything <laughs> last time. But uh, uh, it, it's really, uh, it's difficult times, difficult times.
Well, look, the whistle has truly blown and the decibel level is high, let me tell you. Um, yeah. And this was a nice augment to what we had done the last time, Jay. So thank you very, very much. Alas, time is against us. Yeah. But I know that um, a lot of folk did reach out the last time and they will probably listen to this and, and want to talk to you. So we'll make sure that your, your details are nicely latched onto this video. But I'd want to thank you, Jay, and... Um, Really, it's just unbelievable, some of the things that uh, have come out of all of this. And um, maybe we could do another one, let the conversation continue, because I feel there's more to it than this. Yeah, now that we're off of the primer, we can go into some of the details uh, on some yeah. of the fiascos. That would be fun. We've, we've greased it nicely. All right, Jay, thank you very, very much. And we shall, uh, we shall see everyone the next time. Thank you, Gross. Vic, appreciate it. Love, love meeting with you. Thank you. Yes, bye-bye.